All right, welcome everybody uh, to The Social Brain, episode 22. Today, we're talking about tribal brain, us versus them, some social neuroscience, social psychology, group dynamics, things of that nature. And I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone, and with me, as always, my co-host, Taylor Guthrie, the great Taylor Guthrie. Uh, so I'm going to hand it off to him. Yeah, this is, uh, I've been looking forward to doing some videos like this, uh, getting into group dynamics, uh, our how our brain has evolved to handle this incredibly complex social environment that we find ourselves in. And I want you to, to just think about the people that you maybe work with or people that you engage with in, in like leisure settings or in church settings or something like that. Uh, how much of yourself do those people actually know? How much of yourself do you share with those people, right? A lot of the times there's pieces of ourself that we share with these people that we in interact with. But most of the time when we're in these work settings, when we're in these leisure settings, we're usually filling a role, right? We're working a job and we're kind of fitting all of our behavior into that role. And most of what that other person has to go off of is just like simple heuristics and categories that, that you make up. So like someone viewing me is going to see this kind of, 30 something year old heterosexual white guy, uh, right, that probably grew up in a middle class family, whatever it may be. And they use all of that to try to predict all of the things that I'm probably going to engage in, all of the behaviors that I'm going to engage in. And what happens when you hear one of these people that you think that you know really well that you work with say something that they maybe agree with a different political ideology than you do, or they have some opinion about a sports team that you don't like or something, all of a sudden your opinion, your perspective of that person completely changes. And a lot of it is due to the fact that our brain only kind of individuates people when we kind of see that as necessary. Like when they're our friends, when they're people that we want to build strong kind of intimate bonds with. But these people that we have kind of shallow bonds with, the ones that we work with, the ones that we're in these leisure groups with, uh, even these people that we don't have any bonds with at all, these people that we just kind of pass on the street, our brain is using categories to represent these people. We don't know experiences that they've been through. We don't know all of the, the gray areas that, that make up their beliefs. Uh, we usually dump them into this category or this category, that category. And it's because it's, it's simple and it's easy for our brain to do that, right? Our brain is constantly trying to take shortcuts to predict other people's behaviors. When we're in these social situations, what we're doing all of the time is trying to predict how that person's behavior is going to impact me. And the only thing that I have to go off of, since I don't know anything about your childhood, anything about your family, anything about where you grew up and all of these different things, all I have to go off of is what you've maybe given me and kind of what kind of stereotypical things I can apply to that. And so we're going to kind of go through how these impressions are, are actually formed when we're thinking about other people, whether it's people that we have these shallow bonds with in these kind of work environments that we're, that we're embedded in when we're kind of fulfilling these roles, but also how we kind of make impressions of just people in general. If you're sitting down in a classroom with someone, if you're kind of in some kind of cafeteria eating food or whatever, uh, the person in front of you at in line, like you don't know anything about that person, but your brain is making all kinds of assumptions. Uh, and you have all of these biases that, that come into play when you're trying to predict another person's behavior. Uh, and so we'll kind of explore where these kind of arose from, why our brain is kind of so prone to engage in this kind of stuff. Uh, and most importantly, I think, if you kind of stick around to the end, we'll talk a lot about how flexible this stuff is. Because all of these prejudices uh, are things that are really easily changed if the work is put in to, to actually kind of come to the table if you want to change them. Uh, and so we'll look at kind of the research around uh, how you kind of reduce this in-group, out-group behavior and prejudice. Yeah, and it's it's good to start with, you know, how did we, why are we like this uh, in a kind of ultimate sense? And I think, you know, like all questions in behavioral sciences, we got to look to evolution to see what, what kind of, what um, pressures were there that made us adapt in the way that we did. And I mean, the truth is that we evolved, we are a super hyper social species, you know, probably one of, if not the most social species, at least mammals on the planet. And, uh, 
and we didn't but we didn't uh we didn't evolve in these super large heterogeneous massive civilizations of billions of people we evolved in small hunter gatherer tribes and that gave us some of these tribal instincts for for hundreds of thousands of years so um yeah so i mean we can do you want to jump into the evolution yeah, yeah. a little bit uh, yeah, and even even before tribal stuff, I uh, I don't know if anybody's seen kind of chimp empire on Netflix or whatever it is. Uh, these these chimp troops, I mean that's 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 where we evolved from. Um, have these incredibly strict boundaries that like this this group of of apes kind of controls this territory, and this group of apes controls this territory. Uh, and even though they're both chimpanzees, and to us they both look the same. Right. The, the northern group and the southern group. Uh, but to them, they know who's in their group and they know who's not in their group. And there's mechanisms in their brain that differentiate that. And there's there's situations where they go to war with each other. I mean, th these are these are kind of our ancestors. Right. And there was already this this hostility between groups of the same species. Uh, and you see this in in most mammals. You see this in in wolf packs. Right. If you look at these, this geographic data of territorial stuff, they have like tracking collars on wolves and they can actually like paint where these wolves go and their territories do not overlap. They know like mm -hmm. this is this is that wolf's group and this is my group and like we are going to stay in our own areas. Uh, and a lot of it is driven by kind of the, the, the resources that you have access to. Uh, it's it's driven by kind of sex and uh, and spreading around genes, right? Separating out so that you're not kind of intermingling genes and all of that kind of stuff. And so there's all of these these really kind of biological mechanisms that have been kind of built into us to say this is this is my group. This is the group that is supporting me. This is the group that I'm sharing resources with. This is the group that is going to protect me if I get into any type of an altercation with a predator or with another group, right? We we develop these really strong intimate bonds with these what we call in group dynamics what you call primary groups, the groups that that you lean on, that you have a lot of dependency with, right? Those are the ones that the, the shoulders to cry on, the ones that that are there for you no matter what happens. And those are the kind of groups that even if there's conflict, you you don't break it off, right? Unless the conflict is really, really bad. But most of the time you think about like families, you think about really good friendships, uh, they can usually sustain a lot higher levels of conflict than like a coworker that you have just some kind of shallow relationship with, right? And these really strong bonds that we have in these primary groups are things that our brain has learned how to learn a lot about those people, how to individuate them, how to really kind of make sense of the individual features that, that make them up and uh, all of the, the past experiences and memories that I have with these people and what their personality is and all of this stuff. We spend a lot of time kind of doing that, creating these models of these people that we care about. But then the people that we don't care about, people in these other groups, we don't have that much information to work with. And a lot of the information that we have is fear because they want our resources. They want to harm us. They want to take things from us. That was kind of, that was the tribal kind of way of being was that most of the competition between groups was over haves and have nots. It was a status thing. And when you look at, at how that plays out, there's this really interesting thing when you get into the kind of group dynamics of this, they've shown in these psychology experiments that individuals are viewed as being much less competitive and scary than groups. So if I'm just looking at just another individual, I don't really see him as being this like competition to me or whatever. But I've, if I think of him embedded within a group, that's an out group, I now see them as being really, really competitive, really scary. They, they want, and I think it's important to define competition. Competition is not just like, oh, we're, we're competing for who gets this and who. Uh, co competition is usually maximizing my reward while hurting their chance of getting it. And that's what most of it has been. Yeah, for most of human history, like uh, only recently do we have, you know, economic systems that are at least somewhat positive, some games for everybody. It's a win-win for at least mm -hmm. in some circumstances, but for for a lot of the time of, in our species history, it was, it was, you know, zero sum game. Yep. The way that you 
built wealth as a society or as a tribe was to steal it or you know exploit the the next door tribe so it makes sense that that we have this kind of scarcity you know zero sum mindset built into our brains on some at, at least at some you know level and and it's it's adaptive right like having some kind of shortcut in my brain that tells me like i know that this other ape or this other kind of tribal human is part of my group and this other person is not part of my group uh you have to think of what are those situations in which I actually have contact with that outgroup member? What kind of things usually happen when I come in contact with an outgroup member? And for most of our history as a species, it was violent. Like if you were in some somebody else's territory, they thought that you were there to take stuff from them. There wasn't a lot of communication between groups to say like, look, we should share, we should trade, whatever, like that eventually came on the scene. But most of our wiring for hundreds of thousands of years was built around this assumption that outgroup is bad and outgroup should be feared. And so when when that's the case, just like how the amygdala lights up if you see a predator, right? If you're walking along a path and you see a snake on the ground, your amygdala is going to be like, hey, like we need to kick things into into a different setting. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna hook up the hypothalamus to start pumping some hormones to take away uh, energy from the gut and to send it to the muscles so that we can run. Right? There's all of these physiological things that'll happen when you initiate these really short term kind of amygdala type processes. Yeah, um, and I just wanted to just go back a second, um, just to a point about the hostility between outgroups is that we don't always necessarily uh, see an outgroup as hostile, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, but that it does depend on the chances of our competing or how many, how likely we are to interact with them in the future, how similar we are or perceive ourselves to be to that group, right? Is that, and no, so, that's, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say a kind of funny or, you know, a modern day example of that uh, is in sports. Like I was thinking about football teams that are in the same division are typically rivals because they have yeah. a lot more chances of competition and it's a lot higher stakes competition than like, you know, you don't really care about the the team that's way outside of your division that you play, you know, once every few years. It's like the ones that you have the yeah. highest chances of competition and interaction with. Uh, are the ones they have the most hostility towards. So, <laughs> so and that's a, it's a really good point because the the picture that I was painting is this picture from like really early tribal settings where there was like barely any contact at all between these different groups, like like with the chimps and stuff. But as you start to kind of evolve into kind of a trade network, into these different kind of neighboring villages help each other, but these ones don't, uh, you start to see these these different kind of patterns emerge where if those other people in that other group are really similar to you, if they have kind of uh, a way of interacting that may be positive in the future, there's all of these different kind of factors that come in, in terms of how I'm going to now view you. And there's some really interesting stuff we're going to get into uh, when we get into the stereotype content model here in a bit about kind of how these factors create different types of thems. There's the thems that, that we hate, that uh, there's hostility towards, uh, but then there's thems that we pity, and there's thems that, that we envy, and there's thems that we really like, uh, and there's a lot of different situational factors that kind of determine which way we go. All right. All right. Maybe we should take a second to check out the chat. We got a yep. uh, question here. Um, uh, hey, hi to everybody saying hello in the chat, but uh, <laughs> Jay Kawa says, how... How do we humans compare to other social animals like parrots, crows, wolves, dogs, etc.? Um, well, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we are similar to them. There's this great book um, I have somewhere else. This, uh, this is called "Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are?" and it's by this guy, <laughs> Franz De Waal, who has studied. Um, primates as well as corvids like uh, crows and um, and ravens and those other intelligent birds. And throughout that book, one of the main points he makes is that we are not that unique. There's really mm -hmm. one, one thing 
one kind of cognitive faculty that seems to separate humans from all other animals uh, that is qualitatively different from, from what other animals have, and that's language. That's this yeah. ability to use symbols to communicate um, in this like very specific and, and intricate way that we do. Um, I actually have a video about this on my <laughs> channel called uh, what, what Makes Us Human or something like that. So if you're interested in going deeper into that, we, we probably won't talk too much about other species on this episode. But I mean, it, it's a good point because uh, we are not very unique in, in the social sense. Uh, we have the same type of kind of dominance hierarchies in our civilizations that you see in, in wolf packs that you see in uh, like crows and all of these different kinds of things. Um, and what Andrew said is a really good point in that the only thing that really kind of differentiates it, that sets it apart is that we have now, we now have the ability to communicate a lot of this stuff in abstract symbols in that we can create social norms and expectations that have language involved, uh, where like we can now go to a store and hand some complete stranger a piece of paper and they can give us something in return. Like that's not something that an ape can do. They can't just walk up to a stranger and interact with them. But we have this, this system of, of rules that are kind of dictated by the language and the abstract kind of concepts that we're able to put together. That's great. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, should we uh, move on to getting yeah. more into the brain stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about some brain stuff. All right. So you mentioned. Oh, oh I don't know what just happened to my camera. Well, I can Let's still hear it. you, but um, <laughs> uh, you mentioned the the amygdala as being this this way that we we process threats really quickly in our environment, and that this comes up in the context of social cognition as well. Yeah, um, I think one of the really important things to think about in terms of uh, like how a lot of this stuff plays out in the brain is to think about the timing of information as it's coming in. So when we see something, when we hear something, a lot of that that sensory information is going to these these midbrain structures first. It's going to kind of the if you look at kind of like cross section of the brain, uh, it's that stuff in the middle. Uh, and that stuff is able to process a lot of this information to kind of a, a cursory level. So imagine kind of like taking a picture with like an old 90s like flip phone, right? Like that's what your amygdala has access to. <laughs> this really like grainy photo of what it thinks is going on out there. But it has access to that information really quickly because that's where the information is coming first as it's coming through the senses. But then that information goes to the visual cortex and it turns into pixels and the pixels get put into lines and the lines into edges and then eventually it turns into an object. And your cortex has created now this really high depth perception of what's out there. So now you have your, your Samsung S55 taking a <laughs> picture, right? Uh, <laughs> and you now have this really high depth picture. And the thing that's happening between the cortex and the amygdala is that the cortex is actually taking a lot more information into account. And it's creating this, this much kind of more clear picture of what's out there. And then it's down-regulating the amygdala. So the amygdala comes on first and it's like, holy crap, there's a snake, right? We need to be afraid. We need to pump the body into fight or flight mode, change all of the resource allocation in our body and start running. And then as it's doing that, as you're getting into this fight or flight state, that's when your cortex is still thinking. It's still like, uh, no, that's stick, <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Calm down amygdala like we can pump the brakes we can get back to a, a rest and digest type situation um and you really have to have insight into this process because that's as we get through the episode that's kind of the the basis for a lot of the implicit bias that we'll talk about is that we have this kind of really cursory stored social knowledge that's been built up through our entire life and our experiences and all of these things that gets triggered really fast when we see something that may be threatening, that may be scary, that may be whatever. Um, and then we actually have to do the work of like contextualizing it and saying, is this really a bad thing? Are they really a bad person? Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good. And so when um, when it comes to these these stereotypes, it seems like we're, you know, that that fast pathway that you just talked about going through the kind of the subcortical regions is somehow making use of 
of these stereotypes to some extent. What, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, our brain. So I think the, the most important thing to, to really kind of highlight at the beginning here is the importance of categorization. Like we're going to be talking about it in terms of people, because that's something that we're like experts in as, as humans, we're this incredibly social species. Uh, but I think it's important to think of it first in terms of like objects, right? As you're, as you're growing up, as you're a child, like you're learning how to categorize the world into these different subtypes, right? You have these superordinate categories that is car, but then you break car down into trucks and minivans and, and all of these different things, right? Uh, and you're doing that based on what's similar between all of these things. And your brain is actually creating these, these kind of averages, these prototypes of the things that you're experiencing, right? If I, if I say, uh, imagine an apple right now, or imagine a chair, most of you are not thinking about every apple that you've ever seen. You're not thinking about all the green ones and the yellow ones and the red ones and the, the ones in between. Your brain comes up with just a snapshot, just quick prototypical average apple. It's probably like a, a red delicious because that's the one that we've probably seen the most throughout our lives, right? Uh, if you think of a chair, you're thinking of just the, the kind of chair that comes to mind first. It might be one that you saw recently or whatever, but that's the type of, that's called prototypical thinking. And when we're thinking about that in terms of objects, we usually call it prototypes and all of these kind of things. But when we're thinking about that in terms of people, we call them stereotypes. But it's the exact same process that we're going through is that our brain has broken people down into these simplified categories of saying, these people tend to do these things, these people tend to do these things. And I'm gonna use these shortcuts because what I'm trying to do as a brain moving through a social world is trying to understand who's a threat to me, who's a help to me, who's gonna be there for me and who's not gonna be there for me. And I need to constantly be, be predicting behavior. And I don't have access to all of like the information about you. So just as when we see an apple and we assume, well, apples are sweet, um, they're more or less mushy, but you know they have the that's <laughs> certain texture to them, and that there's all these features that we ascribe to an apple. Without, I mean, it could be that we pick up an apple and it's salty and and hard, and it's not <laughs> uh, not what we expected. But we do that in social situations with social cognition mm -hmm. as well. So we'll see somebody who we perceive as a, a certain type of person, and then we start to ascribe all these characteristics to them uh, in this sort of like quick, without even thinking about it way. And a lot of the work that's been done with this kind of like prototype stuff in terms of like memory and uh, implicates the hippocampus as being a really big part of that. And you, you got to look at like all of the stuff that's like right next to each other in the middle of the brain. The hippocampus is really close and really interconnected with the amygdala and all of these kind of things. So when we're talking about these kind of early sensory regions having access to social information, it's because they have access to these, these prototypes. They have access to this kind of stored social knowledge. Um, and it's only when we kind of step out of that into a lot of these kind of frontal regions. So your, your VMPFC, so ventral medial prefrontal cortex, it's going to be kind of in the middle down near the bottom of your frontal, frontal cortex, uh, is where a lot of the, the individuation happens. It's where a lot of the kind of extrapolating the social knowledge, really thinking about the context and all of these different things, uh, because that's where we start to bring in a lot of integrated information. We're taking into account what's going on in the environment, who that person actually is, whether they are a friend or foe or whatever. Uh, and that, that region is involved in like value. Like what value does this person have to me and this environment and all of these different things. Um, and we're using that then to then in, maybe turn down the stereotype uh, or maybe justify using the stereotype because we don't have enough information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so then what about facial recognition? What about, um, how do we, what's the difference between how we, we perceive someone from like an in-group versus an out-group and what, how does that happen in the brain? Yeah. So there's a, uh, there's a region called the fusiform face area. 
Um, and there's there's a lot of debate about whether it's specific for faces or not, but we know that it's really robustly active for faces. And what you tend to see when you do these these uh, these studies where you're looking at like in-group versus out-group type stuff um, is that the fusiform face area tends to, to light up a lot for in-group members and doesn't really light up a lot for out-group members. And we know from psychology too, that there's, there's a lot of bias when it comes to, uh, it's called the, the heterogeneity effect. So I tend to view the members of my in-group as having kind of these features that make them different from one another. But when I view an out-group, I see them all as being the same. They have, I, it's hard for me to distinguish this person from that person, but in my in-group, I know that's this person and that's that person. Um, and it's because our brain is putting in the work to actually, to, to think about the different features that make up my face and make me who I am. Um, and there seems to be a lot of communication between kind of these frontal regions and these lower sensory regions that are putting all of this together to say like, maybe we should individuate this person or maybe we shouldn't. Yeah, and uh, well, we've got a question in the chat that pertains to this, but um, I was just going to say, just uh, to kind of emphasize that point of what the fusiform face area, how important it is for recognizing individual faces is that people with, with damage to that area have uh, what's called face blindness, or uh, there's a more technical term I can't mm -hmm. remember right now, but um, it, I mean, they, they see that there's a face there, but they can't individuate like, oh, that's my that's my brother like that's my mm -hmm. brother's face it's just more of a it seems to be i mean this also depends on the extent to the damage and, and the individual case but it can be a situation where they're unable to actually see that face as an individual and that's really interesting in, in what taylor just said because if we're activating that region more for in-group members then we really are seeing more of, of the details and the individual features of those faces than for outgroups. Yeah, and it, yeah, you're right. Jekawa, prosopagnosia is the, Thank you. the name of that. Yep. Yes. <laughs> uh, and we had a, a question from Sherry too. How is it when you recognize the face but can't remember the name? Uh, that probably is like a connection issue that you have this region that recognizes faces on, but it's not correctly communicating with the regions of the brain that have semantic knowledge that have words uh but something that's that's really interesting so there's there's work that i'm currently doing right now it's uh, i'm writing it up so it hasn't been published yet uh but we did find that we had these we had groups of people come into the lab uh so there were six people they all knew each other but they were different types of groups we had work groups we had like fraternities we had friend groups we had uh and there was different levels of how people liked each other the social relationships in the group all of that and what we found was that the more you indicated that you were friends with someone the more unique the patterns of information were in areas like the fusiform face area and like the the mpfc that we've talked about so it's it's this case, what it seems to be is that uh, it could be that as we become friends with people, as we develop these really strong bonds with one another and become intimate with one another, our brain is actually putting in work to individuate you, to create unique patterns of information that represent you and uniquely you. Whereas if I'm not friends with you, I'm not going to put all that work in. I'm not going to spend all of these resources in my brain creating these unique patterns that say... I'm going to, I'm going to stick with my shortcuts. I'm going to stick with my stereotypes. And so that is the kind of basis for a lot of this stuff. But we got to remember that a lot of this is, is incredibly flexible. Right. And we'll kind of get into that as we go. But I think there's a couple other regions we can maybe talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So we've kind of talked a little bit about the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, touched on the hippocampus. Um, but we can't get too far in talking about emotions and social, uh, I mean, social life is, is filled with emotions and uh, a really important region in that regard is the insula, right? Mm -hmm. um, and some of the, the earlier work, I believe, on the insula showed how important it was for the emotion of disgust, like our disgust at, um, like gustatory disgust, like not wanting to eat something contaminated or be close to someone who's sick or something like that. Um, but that this emotion and this region is the, the uh, coding, the, the way that we, we feel disgust in the 
gustatory sense has been kind of co-opted into social cognition, into the realm of morality. And um, yeah, and there's some there's some really interesting work on that by uh, psychologist Jonathan Haidt and uh, mm -hmm. Paul Rosen. And um, just showing that we the, the same sorts of mechanisms are at work when we're disgusted by, say, uh, you know, seeing some excrement or something on the ground <laughs> and seeing, uh, you know, a disgusting moral act, someone being executed or something like that. Or just violating a social norm, right? You're out, you're out in public and someone's doing something that just like, isn't right. Like they're making out in public or uh, they're, they're breastfeeding in public, which should be okay. But it's like the social norm that, that we have, right? Uh, you have this. And the interesting thing is that you tend to feel sick to your stomach when these things happen, right? You get queasy. And it's this, this idea that the brain is not creating these like these new brain regions for these, these new moral things that we now have as humans, right? Because most of these, these moral social norms are things that have been created in the last couple hundred years, last thousand years or whatever. Um, it's really more that we're co-opting a lot of these things that already existed. We're talking about people as being hot or cold and we're using the parts of our brain that actually regulate temperature. Like to think about whether someone's a cold person or a hot or like a, a warm person in terms of personality uh, and in terms of disgust. Yeah, we have this region of the brain that was that was really important for protecting our body from things that that, that might hurt us or that might be kind of putrid or rancid. Uh, and now that same like like your your nose curls up, the, the look that you get on your face when you're disgusted. We do that to moral disgust, to to people breaking social norms. Um, and it's as though we're smelling something that is is terrible or we're eating something that tastes really bad. Yeah. And I, just to to touch back on the uh, the temperature thing you mentioned, because that's also uh, partly a function of the insula. Really? And there's just these interesting studies where people will um, like hold a warm uh, drink, a warm mug, as opposed to a cold drink. And then they'll rate their interactions with other people during that time as more positive when they're holding the, the warm drink. Or even if you change the temperature of the room, it uh, has a similar effect. And then you can go in the, the reverse direction that people, when they're having these more positive, warmer social interactions, they'll rate the temperature of the room as higher than they would mm -hmm. in a colder, ne more negative interactions. So it's just the, showing like that that overlap of, of these more ancient brain regions that were involved yeah. in just simple temperature sensation and uh, kind of co-opting them into social cognition and, and things like that. And it, it sets the stage for a lot of the, the really inhumane acts that we that we engage in. Because if if we're truly seeing a person a moral act as being disgusting in the same way that we would see something rancid or putrid, then what are we willing to do in those regards? And we can see from history that it's it's not a pretty picture, right? And the other thing too that's, that's really interesting kind of in this same vein, I think Andrew froze a little bit, but uh, is some of these, these hormones. Um, so oxytocin is really interesting and i actually i didn't know this until until recently like i've always had this view of oxytocin as as being this just like love drug like let's all just get together and hug and sing kumbaya i uh, it is that oxytocin definitely is that for the in group but if you have a bunch of oxytocin present in your body and there's an out group member there it actually like gets you to uh, exhibit more outgroup hostility, like aggressiveness. Uh, and it's, it's a really incredibly interesting phenomenon that we, we have this kind of stereotypical way of thinking about oxytocin that it's all about getting along or whatever. Uh, but it's really about in-group, out-group behavior. It's about, I'm, I'm gonna be very loving and, and connected with the people that I have these strong bonds with, but it's also getting me to, to be hostile and aggressive to these people that are in my out group. Um, and they've also found too with uh, testosterone uh, that <laughs> I think Andrew, he'll be back soon. There you <laughs> uh, Testosterone is, is also really interesting because um, they've found that uh, with these really clever experiments that it's not just about aggression. 
It's more about kind of status. Uh, it's it's in, it's getting you to engage in behaviors that are going to raise your status in a group that you're a part of. Uh, and they've done these studies that show that if you make the rewards of being kind of high status, uh, being things that are, are really positive, then testosterone will actually get you to engage in a lot more positive activities uh, than, than aggressive ones. And so it's really more about kind of maintaining your status within the, the group that you're a part of. <laughs> it's all right, Andrew, we'll, you'll get back here eventually. Um, I think that uh, what we can maybe do, and we can maybe circle back to some stuff if, uh, if Andrew's got some stuff to, to say about some of those. Uh, but I think uh, something that's really important is this something that I, I kind of hinted at earlier in the episode was that uh, there are different types of, of thems that, that we encounter. There we go. I kind of got you, Andrew. <laughs> uh, but we tend to think of this in-group, out-group thing as being kind of in-group good, bad group, out-group kind of hostile, bad, aggressive. Like those are the actions we're going to take towards the out-group. But a lot of the research, uh, there's a, a researcher named Susan Fisk that's done this really incredible work around what they call the stereotype content model um, that has really kind of dived into the different types of behaviors that we exhibit towards different types of outgroups. So not just kind of aggressive because you guys are competing with me, whatever it is. Uh, she developed this whole way of kind of tracking the impressions that we're forming of other people. Uh, and one of the main kind of components of this was that when we meet someone, we are kind of judging that person on a couple different characteristics. And a lot of psychologists have put a lot of work in to try to figure out kind of what those different characteristics are that we're using to judge someone when we're forming an impression. And her research has showed that we're probably using these two dimensions to a really large extent, and that's warmth and competence. So when we meet someone, first of all, we have this impression of how warm they are or how hostile they are, right? Are you someone that is going to be very agreeable and is going to get along with me and is going to help me to a certain extent? Or are you someone that is kind of competitive with me, that is hostile towards me and all of these kind of things? Uh, what are your intentions, right? Uh, there we go. I think I got you, Andrew. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we... I just jumped into stereotype content model. And so this idea that we're, we're judging people first on warmth. So how, how much are you going to kind of be a part of what I'm doing? But the other one is competence. So how competent are you in actually being able to achieve your intentions, whatever they may be? So if you have hostile intentions or if you have agreeable intentions, if you want to actually get along with me, um, what is your capability of actually doing that? Um, and those two kind of it forms this this kind of uh, uh, this this continuum of you can have people that are really warm but not very competent, and you can have people that are really competent but not very warm, uh, and it creates this kind of four quadrant type uh, situation where it, it, you have these different groups that are treated differently based on how much they're going to kind of help me or hurt me, and how kind of how much capability they have to actually accomplish the things that they want to accomplish. And so I don't know if you want to kind of step in, if you wanted to, if you had another couple of thoughts, Oh, you just froze again. <laughs> but I, uh, so I'll start just kind of going through some of these different categories as, as Andrew works his way back on here. <laughs> so I, uh, the one that is kind of, I think, the most obvious in terms of, of in-group type behavior is we tend to view in-group members okay. as... Am I, can you hear me? Am I back? Uh, I got you now. I got you now. Kind of. And now you froze again. We'll figure this out one day, guys. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to keep rolling through. Uh, so... The people that are reserved for the in-group, the ones that that get the 
the the kind of love, the support, the the empathy, and all of that kind of stuff um, are the ones that we view as being kind of warm and as being competent. They're the ones that are there for us, the the shoulder that we have to cry on, uh, and they're also the ones that that have the capability of being there for us. And because of that, we we tend to reserve a lot of these these positive behaviors Man, and these I'm positive sorry. emotions for them. Um, but if you start to look at these other categories, you start to see these these really interesting behaviors emerge based on kind of where they fall on these continuums. And so if you have someone that is a really high competence, so they have this really high capability of, I think I got you now, Andrew. All right. Uh, so I'm kind of working through the, the four quadrants, uh, the stereotype model. And so if you have these people that are really competent, so they're the people that are really capable of achieving whatever it is that they set out to achieve. And you can think about these people as being kind of uh, people that are rich, people that have kind of high celebrity status, uh, people that have high status in the company that you're a part of, right? Um, but that have low warmth, like they don't really kind of give you any positive anything, right? They're not connected to you. They don't provide any. Uh, we tend to reserve emotions and behaviors like envy and jealousy for these people. And it's really interesting because these are the kind of people that we exhibit schadenfreude. I'm pronouncing that right. Schadenfreude. Uh, schadenfreude. There you go. Schadenfreude for uh, where we actually kind of enjoy seeing them at their worst, like seeing them get knocked down a peg, right? Uh, if like their business fails or if they like trip and fall into the lake by accident, it's like, yeah, <laughs> you had it coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure if you've, if you covered all of them, the, um, but it is, it is interesting that we, it seems to be like reliably we elicit or these different groups can elicit these specific emotions. And, um, and then that, is also feeds into how we we see them um as uh in our own life i'm sorry i'm still getting i feel like i have connections i'm really apologize to everyone for my my <laughs> connection issues today i'm gonna hand it over to taylor no, you're again. all good man no you're all good i uh, so th this group that that has this this high status right we we tend to see them as kind of an out group right they are an out group but it's not that we're like hostile and aggressive towards them that we want them to to just like uh disappear and uh like have this like hatred but it's it's something that that we do have this kind of envy we want the stuff that they have right we want to to live a life where we're not living paycheck to paycheck where we're struggling to pay for our groceries and all of these kind of things right and you see these people that are that have these these uber mansions and and are like uh spending the weekend in bali just because right uh and you have this the sense of like why you right you're not a you're not a warm person you're not helping me in any regards like why do you get to do that and I don't uh, and so because of that we tend to have these these emotions and these behaviors towards them that we really want to see them kind of brought down to our level and when we see that happen it kind of gives us this sense of glee almost it's like yeah. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and that's, that's not the case with the high warmth, high competence people. Right. And mm. so it's not just the, the high competence It's that we perceive these, these high competence people as be, being low on the, the warmth dimension. Mm. And I don't know if you've mentioned this yet, but, um, but these different categories that, that we're talking about, um, <clears throat> the, the uh, main researcher behind this model, uh, Susan Fisk, mm -hmm. um, she has this interesting work about, the medial prefrontal cortex, which we've mentioned a few times in this episode, which is yep. highly involved in our in social cognition and our, our sense of self. Um, and uh, she, she talks about how th there's some work showing that it, it activates more strongly for high warmth, high competence people and, and the least um, the, it has the lowest degree of activation for low warmth, low competence mm -hmm. people. And she kind of interprets this as as indicating the degree to which we consider these people to have a mind similar to our own 
yeah. if I'm saying that. Correctly. No, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a, a great way of thinking about it. And it gets back to this idea of individuation. Like, when am I actually going to put the effort in, in terms of brain resources and all of these things, to, to actually try to understand you, to try to create this, like, this narrative about you that's kind of entwined with mine in some way. Um, that's reserved for people that are going to help us and that have the capability to help us, right? So you have this other group that is a, they're really high in warmth. They really like, we, we have this special place for them in our hearts, but they're low on the competence. And I don't want you to think about competence in terms of like intelligence. Competence is purely the ability to accomplish things, right? And so you see people in this low competence, but high warmth category as people that are usually disabled people that, that need a lot of support from you, right? They don't have the ability to actually do things for themselves. And so they, they need help from, from us, from the in-group. Um, and we have this really special emotion for them and it's called pity, right? And it kind of, it's, it's something, it's really interesting though, because when you look at pity, uh, pity is what's considered a, a prescribed uh, emotion. It's something that we will give you pity as long as you kind of stay in your lane, as long as you stay high warmth, right? As soon as you get hostile or kind of break your role or whatever, uh, or if like you being disabled is your fault and it's not just some accident that happened, right? Uh, that that's what, so it's, it's a really interesting category. Like pity t tends to describe what we have for like people in that category. Uh, but only if they meet the certain criteria to to deserve it, whatever that means. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, uh, in that context of of uh, someone who's disabled, that um, when we see somebody building their competence uh, despite a disability, it seems like it elicits something like um, uh, admiration, you mm -hmm. know, rather than pity. Um, so it's if if they can if they don't if they don't become hostile after that point and, and maintain the high warmth and building that competence. Uh, it's interesting how our, our emotional, um, our, our feelings about that person shift. And it's, it's the kind of, you really have to think that that high warmth, high competence category, the ones that, that are really kind of agreeable and in support of us, but also have the capability to reciprocate are the ones that we're willing to give the kind of positive emotions to them that we want from them, right? We'll give you admiration and love and support and all of these things, but it's because I know that you can reciprocate it. And that's where pity is interesting because it's this disconnect. It's like, I know that you can't reciprocate it. And so it's like, oh, that, that really stinks. I'm here for you, uh, right? Um, and it's, it's not a great emotion at all like it it really it, it comes with a lot of shame it comes with a lot of uh of pressure right in terms of the person that that needs all of this help uh but it's it's to to really kind of delineate this fact that there are these different groups and i think the most important one that we've kind of saved for last is the low warmth and low competence group the people that we view as not having any connection to us any support to us right they're not warm and affectionate to us but they're also really low competence. They don't have the ability to actually do anything. And usually these are uh, in, in terms of category, because like they do these in these psychology experiments where they, they have different categories of people and they have people rate them on in terms of like where they line up and all of these things. And you tend to see like homeless people and minorities will end up in this low warmth, low competence category. Uh, and sp specific minorities, right? Like uh, refugees and, and people like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, I was just thinking in kind of a, a larger social um, history sense that like some of the, the social progress that, that we've made over the centuries has seems to have been reconceptualizing people from being in the low warmth, low competence to high warmth, low competence. So seeing it like as, is not their fault, right? Someone who has mm -hmm. a severe mental illness, it's not just a failure of their will. It's, you know, one point yeah. thought it's a chemical imbalance or, you know, we now we see it as more complex than that, but reconceptualizing people from being it being their fault and, and feeling disgust at this group to more, you know, a, a more, I would say pity is, is better to, to feel about people <laughs> yeah. than disgust, the disgust. More, you know, compassionate <laughs> attitude. Uh, so just an observation there. 
and and you, you you highlighted it. I mean, disgust is the emotion that is usually portrayed in this this setting. And they did this really interesting study where they used the same category of warmth and competence, but they had people rate animals instead of rating people. And what you tend to see is that the animals that land in the low warmth, low competence area usually disgusting animals are like rats and insects and all of these kind of things and it it starts to paint this picture if, if that's how our brain is categorizing other things right we already talked about the ability of like the insula to turn actual disgust for like food into moral disgust if our brain is categorizing animals into the same category that we we have homeless people and refugees and all of these kind of people how do we actually view them do we view them as humans, as people that have minds that are like us, that are that are trying and striving and suffering and doing those things? Or are they just kind of lesser than us? Right. And it really kind of paints the picture of why we've, as a species, been capable of some really damaging and ugly stuff. Yeah. Dehumanization. Right. We're we're mm -hmm. in in some sense, literally dehumanizing people um, based on these characteristics. And, and then, you know, maybe, maybe this is a time to, to start thinking about in what, what do we, how can we change this in ourselves? Yeah. What, what sorts of, you know, levers are available to us to not fall into these traps that were kind of set for us throughout um, evolution and our personal history and um, the, culture we live in and what, what can we do to try to work against these kinds of biases yeah and when you look at um a lot of the literature so there's been this whole literature on what's called contact theory on like how do we bring in groups and out groups together to actually facilitate a lot of this kind of recategorization right because we want to what we want to we have this original kind of implicit bias like where we're categorizing people based on these kind of impressions that we're informing of them um, but the whole process of recategorization is something that requires effort. Um, and it's not enough to just put groups together and say, talk about it, right? Because uh, usually when you put groups together that have this hostility, this in-group, out-group type stuff, the communication is about the things that they don't like about each other. Uh, and so you need some kind of structure around how to actually go about this recategorization process. You need to have people come together with the intent of individuation. Like that is that is the goal we need to because so much of group dynamics is about identity. It's about me kind of taking this group that I'm a part of as an extension of myself, that it's really meaningful to me to be a part of this group. And because of that, I'm going to assume a lot of the values and the beliefs and all of these things that come with that. But that tends to be kind of viewed from an outsider as that's all you are, is that group identity. Right. And the process of really breaking down these barriers, everything that we've talked about is that we need to get the brain to engage in individuation. We need to get it to see people as individuals. Talk about your childhood. Talk about the experiences that you've been through, the traumas that you've been through. Talk about the different types of groups that you're a member of. Right. Break those categorizations. Say, I'm not just a blank. I'm also a part of this. And I also have these really similar things that I like about you. And uh, and all of this. And like, we need to, to really remember that even though we may have a lot of these kind of stereotypes and impressions that are built in, uh, they're incredibly flexible because you can take someone that I originally view as an outgroup member. Let's say they have a different skin color as me. Uh, they don't look like they have any of the same like uh, preferences or anything. But then all of a sudden they put on a baseball cap that's the same team that I like. Now they're an in-group member. You still there, Andrew? <laughs> uh, and that is, I think, one of the most important things to remember is that uh, most of, especially a lot of the racial stuff, is not hardwired. We spent so many thousands of years in isolated tribes that the outgroup was rarely a, a group of a different race. It was a group that was that was near us geographically that we were warring with. Um, and so a lot of this, this kind of 
stuff that we deal with in terms of prejudice today uh, is actually a, it's a social construct. It's something that has been kind of ingrained in us through the experiences that we've had, uh, learning things from the, the family we grew up in, the culture we grew up in, all of these different things. Uh, and it's kind of created this, this model that we see the world through. That, that we've learned that, that these people tend to be like this and these people tend to be like this. And the way to break that is to actually focus on how those people are individuals apart from all of these kind of stereotypical things that I've learned and stereotypical things that I've engaged in. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the risk of repeating things because I couldn't hear oh, you because my connection is terrible today. Um, you're all good. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say just, and also, you know, within yourself, like resisting the the urge of or the you know the pull of groupthink that that if yeah. you're on a specific team it can be really really easy to just fall into the way that they think about things the sort of mouthing the things that they say without really thinking through it yourself and mm -hmm. i think that's a really important part of, of what we're talking about here you know not only individuating the other people but individuating yourself really thinking for yourself and and having your own opinions your own analysis of things and um, and I was going to say one one point of uh, or a couple couple reasons to be hopeful and confident about that we we can change this and that these biases don't define how we interact in the world are um, the so people may have heard of the implicit association test um, this is a kind of psychological test that's kind of blown up in the last five or ten years and it's this. Um, this test you can take there. There's a bunch of different ones on the internet. Uh, one from Harvard, one from thing called uh, an organization called Project Implicit, mm -hmm. and you can take this test and um, and it'll show you kind of a, a person or two people of uh, different skin colors in in succession, and then um, you're supposed to um, choose a word like positive or negative. Um, man, I'm messing it up, but it's <laughs> it's <laughs> hard uh, to describe. Yeah, it's anyway. It's designed to to see what are your um, your associations with someone of a different skin color. Are they more positive or negative? And then it's aimed at at finding what is the level of implicit bias that you have kind of built in without you know your your conscious mm -hmm. knowing that. But um, and it's it's kind of touted as oh this this shows you know what racism or, or sexism that it's it's kind of hardwired and that it's underneath all this but the reality is there's, there's two things that are important to know about the IAT that it has not been found to predict actual discriminatory behavior in real life and the second is that on studies looking at implicit association test scores over time this the um, implicit biases against uh, people of different racial groups or of, um, who are of a different sexuality um, have gone down over time. And this is probably a result of changing cultural norms yeah. and um, the way that we think about people. So I think, you know, it can be really easy to fall into this feeling of like, oh, we're, we're hardwired to to be like this and we're just tribal. And, you know, we, <laughs> we said at the beginning, we kind of evolved to be this way. But yeah, the reality sure. is that this is really flexible and it can and has changed over time. The parts of the brain that we've talked about today are the most plastic parts of our brain. Uh, and, and we really have to keep that in mind. They're the ones that are the most capable of change. And this whole recategorization process, it takes effort, right? The reason we have these stereotypes is because they're fast and they're easy, right? These implicit attitudes, whatever they may be. Um, but it takes that, that moment of you sitting down, maybe taking the IAT, going online and seeing what maybe some of your implicit biases are, just to give you something to reflect on. And to say, like, how is it that I view these people? Uh, where do they fall on warmth and competence? And how can I maybe change that? What kind of things can I change about my attitudes, about the stereotype itself? Because the more time you spend thinking about them, the more time they become more of a we, right? And we live in such a flat world now. Like, it, it's we're so interconnected with everyone. Like, you look back even a hundred years ago, like the amount of contact that was possible between different races and different cultural groups. And now with different languages, they even have glasses you can wear now that are heads up displays where you can talk to someone in a different language and it translates in real time for you. Like the reason why so much dehumanization has existed was because of how we were able to paint this picture that those people were different. And now we're seeing, I mean, I worked, I taught English to, to children in China 
uh, during the pandemic. And it was in the middle of the night. It was these children over in another country. Uh, and I had this window into their homes. And I was like teaching this child, but he was sitting at the table having dinner with his family. And I was like, that's like exactly what I do with my child, right? We're not that different. And the more time we can spend actually thinking about how we're not different and how we're similar and all of these different things, the more we can shape those those kind of boxes that we're using as filters of the world. That's perfect. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end it. Um, cool. Positive note there. Um, I want to thank everybody who's still watching despite the uh, awful connection issues I've had. I'm glad that Taylor was here as a constant and, and kept it rolling. Um, but yeah, thank you all for being here. Thanks for all the activity in the chat and all yep. the questions. Don't hesitate to drop more questions in the comments if you have them and you're watching this later on. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, we're, I think we're planning on doing another Ask Us Anything episode. So if you have questions about kind of group dynamics and all of the social stuff, uh, if you have questions just about the brain and how the brain works, uh, we can't answer everything. We're not experts in everything, uh, but we're going to take a stab at it. We're going to do some research. Uh, we just, we appreciate the engagement. We appreciate everybody watching. Uh, if you want to support us, check out our our Patreon link. We have it set up, I mean, as much as a dollar an episode, but it keeps us doing this. We love doing this. We love doing it free to consumers. But if you have the ability to help, then be a warm, competent person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, like and subscribe to our channels. I'm a sense of mind and Taylor is the Cellular Republic. So uh, check us out on YouTube. And um, if you want to take these episodes with you and you want to listen to them, we also have a podcast version of The Social Brain and the link should be in the description of, I think, both of these videos. Yep. Awesome. And we'll see you guys for the next one. All right. See you.